Network. Connected. MIDI session. Running. MIDI show control. Confirmed. DMX interface. Connected. Light control. Confirmed. Ethernet. Active. Audio interface. Active and engaged. Arduino unit. In range. Bluetooth remote pair. Connected. OSC IP. Active. We're ready. Start the queue. Featuring Andy Dolph, Joshua Langman, Dave Mickey, Alex Sparks, and Mark Neiser. It's the queue. Welcome to the queue, everybody. Today we are joined by Dave Mickey Hello. and Joshua Langman. Hi, welcome. And today we have a great interview coming up with John Huntington. The interview is in two parts, so we will break it up to give it a little easier to listen to. On with the show. John Huntington is the author of Show Networks and Control Systems and a professor of entertainment technology at New York City College of Technology, also known as City Tech. And uh, he is also an award-winning photographer and storm chaser. Welcome to the Cube. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, we're all excited to hear some of your adventures as well as answer a thousand questions we all have. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and where you came from? How did you find out about show control? Your middle name? All that stuff. Uh, middle name's Secret, so I can't... No, I'm just kidding. Is that a S or a C? C. It's Secret, okay. Caldwell, so I'm actually John Caldwell Huntington III. Really? Very, very officious name. Were, yeah. were you on Gilligan's Island? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was uh, Mr. Howell, right? Oh, William. right. That's right. right. I thought that was you. <laughs> and the Huntington's landed... This is way off topic already, but the Huntington's landed in Connecticut in like 1622, so one of my ancestors uh, signed the Declaration of Independence, was a governor of Connecticut oh, wow. and all that stuff. And, and I'm actually from, I grew up on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, a little small town down there. The, there's no show business down there. And actually, I was thinking about it when I was in my hometown the other day. There was a tea party every year because they had a tea party before the Boston one. I remember that when I was like 12, that they did a multimedia slideshow thing where the guy had a, I can't believe I can remember all this, the guy had a, didn't have a dissolve unit, so he had a piece of wood on a seesaw. And he'd go back and forth, and, and it would literally, when he hit, put it down, it's pretty clever, actually. When he hit the down thing, it would hit the advance button on the slide, so it was sort of like a manual uh, dissolve unit. It was pretty cool. And that's my first recollection of, uh, oh, this is pretty cool, and being involved in show business and stuff. I, when I was a kid, I wanted a tour with Led Zeppelin. That was my sort of goal, because it was a huge, that was my first concert. It's funny, getting older, like, I literally can't even imagine what it was like not having Google and YouTube and all this stuff, but... Especially when you're in a small town like that, you're so isolated just from information, and I, I, it's amazing. So I remember going to the University of Maryland bookstore to go look at theater books, and that was the only way to get information. And I saw a picture of like a smoke machine, and I made one for my brother's band and made my own lighting system and all that kind of stuff. And and then I ended up at uh, went to after uh, high school, and again, always in small towns where there's really no opportunity for any of this stuff. Then I went to Ithaca College, did a bunch of theater stuff there, of course, worked on some concerts and realized that, especially in the 80s, that was a pretty rough life with a lot of drug addicts on the road. And it wasn't, you know, that touring, what I thought I wanted to do, I wasn't sure I really wanted to do that. But then I, and I got, kind of got lucky because on our field trip uh, to New York City from Ithaca, we saw Sunday in the Park with George, the original production on Broadway. We somehow talked our way backstage. Sure, you know that production has all this crazy yeah. lighting and lasers and stuff. There was a big sticker on one of the piece of equipment that said Associates and Farron and it had a phone number out on Long Island. So I just nagged those people like every week until uh, it was literally the week before I graduated. I said, all right, I'm going to call one more time. They said, can you weld? And I'm like, yeah. And they said, can you start tomorrow? Because <laughs> they were building this big crazy movie set. So I said, I need one more week to graduate, and then I'll come out. And then I was there for about two years. 
in the 80s, we were building time code controlled film projectors and doing all kinds of camera work and synchronization. I think that's where I really got interested in all this stuff. And we built projectors for Pink Floyd and Roger Waters and all that stuff in the uh, late 80s. We would get these calls from film production people saying, hey, no one's been able to sync this. And we had some really brilliant engineers there. Yeah, we can do that. And they would. I was just a kid like wiring stuff. And we would just stay all weekend and put this thing on the truck Sunday night at midnight and send it out. So I worked on a bunch of feature films and concert tours and commercials and stuff. And then I went to the drama school thinking I wanted to do production management and ended up realizing I really liked sound and interactive control system stuff more than that. Right around that time, audio was starting to go digital, which worked out great for me because my brain is not very good at analog stuff, and I'm really terrible at math, and which I think are related. It's just I, like you look at an equation to me is meaningless, but code I can understand. So I've, I've been lucky that the world went digital right around that time. So then I moved to New York, 1990, which I've been here 26 years now, which is hard to believe. Worked for theater crafts and lighting dimensions originally, which neither one exists anymore, but all the people from that are still writing the major trade publications, Lighting Sound America and Live Design. It's all the same people I worked with back then, which is kind of amazing. And then I worked for Production Arts Lighting, did all kinds of crazy stuff there, system design, and also worked on the Buccaneer Bay attraction out in Las Vegas. Then I left there, went to Metropolitan Opera, because a friend of mine from school said, hey, they need some people that can do this stuff. And we ended up rebuilding the whole sound system there. And then also right during that time, the Met and the New York Philharmonic do an annual summer parks tour. And we actually took that back in-house while I was there. And so I got to work on these big sound systems outside, which ended up being sort of a specialty of mine. Oh, and then, like I said, rebuilding everything inside. And then I left there and went to work for a guy named, great guy named George Kindler, who was just an amazing guy who did all these really incredible control projects in Las Vegas, and he had been sold his company to PRG, and so I worked in a New York office at PRG for a couple of years. And unfortunately, that thing kind of fizzled out, and George ended up leaving the company, and sadly died a few years after that, which has been just a great guy. Since then, I've been at City Tech, which is like 17, 18 years now, which I can't believe. Oh, and in the middle of all that, when I was at Theater Crafts, I was at the AES convention, this is 100 years ago, and Focal Press came around and were looking for book reviewers, like evaluate proposals and stuff. And on the form it said, if you were going to write a book, what would it be about? And I just basically wrote down show control, which is what my thesis at Yale had been on. Then they contacted me and said, hey, that sounds interesting. And then I ended up, what I was after I left Theater Crafts, but when I was at Production Arts, I released the first edition of the book in like 1994. And then four, four or five years ago, Focal Press wasn't interested in the book anymore and I said well can I have it back and because I, I kept the copyright the whole time and they're like uh yeah I guess so and so I got the lawyer to sign off and then since then I've been self-publishing it and that was one of the best things I ever did because the I have a presentation from two years ago at the Hope Conference which is the hacker conference it's actually coming up in a couple of weeks here that I laid out all the economics of it but I made way more money from self-publishing than I ever would have with the publisher and honestly they just weren't really promoting it very much so I mean I was doing the promotion I did the production work I basically did everything anyway so I'm like why don't I keep the money biggest thing though too I mean of course you want to kind of make a living but also that gives me a lot of flexibility if I want to give away a copy I did a like pay what you will promotion for the online edition when it came out I made videos right straight from the PDF of the book that are all free on my website 
to use in class and just for anybody who's interested. No commercials, nothing in it. And very unlikely I would have been able to talk to the publisher to that. While I've been at City Tech, I still do a couple projects every year. I did this Tribeca Film Festival drive-in, which is a big outdoor sound system for, I think, 12 years until that just ran out of money. And then I, the last few years, I've done a YouTube brandcast, which is the um, YouTube where they sell advertising. The Pink Floyd Video Sync, how are you doing that? With timecode? Or I don't think there even was timecode back then. Oh, yeah. Timecode goes back to the Apollo moon launches, the rocket launches. Or at least I have one book that claims that that seems credible. They used it to synchronize telemetry tapes back then, so that's why it was made. It all works on analog tape and stuff. We actually had an encoder we mounted in a projector. It's a standard Christie film, 35mm film projector. We made a 70mm one, too. And on the inside, the guts of it, I didn't figure out any of this. This was these brilliant engineers I was working on. I was, like I said, I was just a kid wiring stuff. And then after I left, they sold out to Disney and stuff. And then the company kind of got absorbed after that. So I, I've been lucky that I've left a lot of these places at the right time before they disappeared. <laughs> so production arts and the same thing with that. How do you know when to leave? Uh, usually I was just bored or some other thing going on. But you can usually tell. But the associate affairs thing, like, uh, that was more surprising. So we had a reflective foil tab right on a piece in the back of the projector. So that would give us a little square wave pulse once per frame as the thing advanced. And then we would just synchronize that with a software running. It was an original IBM suitcase PC was the software for this. And a brilliant guy wrote the software in this thing. So it would take a giant timecode reader that was like hundreds of dollars that would come into the PC. And then he would count the pulses coming out of the projector and reconcile them and then serve with a projector from that. And then if we use synchronous motors, which aren't supposed to slip, so if you put those in every projector and have all the films be exactly the same length, then they'll stay in sync. The funny thing about that is the film editors in the old days worked in footage and frames, so it would be 80 feet and four frames. This is a cut. So when they were editing things, they would output in footage and frames, then we'd have to calculate into cumulative frame counts from the first frame and then translate that to time code so that would make for some interesting issues disaster he died he, he died in a bizarre gardening accident you screwed up that was tragic really he exploded on stage fix it review you had on shark sandwich which was merely a two-word review just a shit sandwich welcome to tales of disaster you screwed up you gotta fix it what are you going to do? Tell us your stories. Send them in, and we're going to put them on the air. There's a fine line between stupid and, and clever. Like flash of green light, and that was it. I was on tour with one of these projectors. We did a Elvis production. It's the same people who did Beatlemania. So I get the, the cut list from the film editor who've been editing film all day. And he gives me this thing, and I'm like, literally, it's like 7.30, and the, you know, the house is open. And I'm like typing all this stuff in. And I made a mistake, and these are 7,000-watt Xenon projectors, and they had a shutter and a dowser, a big heavy dowser. And if you, the shutter was just for changing between film projectors, so like a normal movie projector, you know, two-projector setup. And But the shutter, the lamp would burn a hole right through it if you weren't careful. And we had this all programmed through the computer, so you had to be very careful about 
close the shutter and then the dowser right away. And if you forgot and parked the film, because we had control over the shutter, the dowser, and the, the motion of the film. So I made a programming error in this thing and parked the film before the shutter was closed oh, yeah. and burned a hole right through the film in front of the audience. <laughs> so it was like, so you'd see this. It was a really cool effect. You just see this like big white flaming sort of thing Whoa. coming from the center of the screen. I'm like running for the dowser to hit it. I had to go back to the film editor and you had to cut that one frame out of all, all three films wow. and synchronize it all again. But you couldn't test it. You know, that was the thing. So the, yeah, there's no time. And especially with film... Like that, uh, you know, you can't stop and go back. We're really spoiled now. Yeah. We had that once at Tribeca Film Festival. It used to be film, the thing we did outside. And I can't remember what movie we were screening, but the, I think it was a premiere. And we didn't get a rehearsal. So we made a, again, made a mistake in our console and just had the center vocal track turned down. The director of the film comes up in tears at the console. We don't even know who they are. And we've been asking, asking, asking for rehearsal. We didn't get it. So we're like, Ugh. and we finally found it and figured out the problem. It only took this about like an hour, but it was like 30 seconds. But now we've missed first three or four minutes of the movie with no dialogue, which is a problem. So the projectionist, uh, who was the one, I think I can say this on here, they were the one who wouldn't give us the rehearsal, then had to rip the film out of the projector and manually re-rack it back and then kind of feed the film in uh, for the first few minutes while it was coming before it came off the platter. So wow. the, I don't, I have no nostalgia. I mean, it was cool. I'm glad I lived through all that. But I have, and the same thing in my own photography, I have no nostalgia for film for that stuff. It's like good, good riddance. Wow. Wow. And my other question related to that was, can you really weld? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, back in those days. It would take me some time now, but I could probably get it back. And it wasn't great, but I just I could do it. And I, I actually enjoyed metal work like that. It was, I mean, that's one of the great things about uh, sort of that theater education is you really learn how to do a little bit of everything and get exposed to a lot of stuff. You know, I wouldn't want to do that professionally, and I'm not that, not that good at it. We made this giant set for this movie called The Manhattan Project that's all steel, you know, you look at it, it's ridiculous because it's not a set, it's a real steel structure. I mean, it's not like rated, it wasn't, certainly wasn't certified welder because I was out there. It's a pretty fun movie, actually. It was 80s and I'm actually in the thing three times. I actually got extra money for that. And so I'm running a robot and then running a laser and then running another robotic. And my friend burned a hole through his fingernail with the laser on camera. And, you know, because we put these laser goggles on that really were real laser goggles and they blocked the beam out so you can't see it. And he's just standing next to me, and they're like, okay, look like you're doing something over there. So we're, like, turning knobs and stuff and trying not... This is a big, powerful argon laser, you know. We're not trying... We can't really move the beam because we're going to shoot at somebody's eye or something. And uh, so I hear him, like, oh! Like, next to me, I'm like, what, what, what? And, and he's like, just burn it. And I could smell, like, that burning <laughs> smell. Oh, my you know, God. Perfect hole right through his fingernail. It's oh like, that. I don't know if that made it into the shot, but uh, that, that happened, so... I think the industry as a whole is really matured to the point now that there's not a whole lot we can't really do with sort of known approaches. Like in those days, you'd have to build this stuff custom to do anything. There's always going to be custom things, of course, but the comparison I use is my friend George did this thing called George Lucas Super Live Adventure back in the mid-90s. And it was a big arena touring show with all the Lucas stuff, so Star Wars and all these Indiana Jones, all that stuff. And they were basically soldering stuff up and custom making MIDI products. And this January, I was out in Oklahoma, this uh, Marvel Universe Live show. It's made by the Feld people, so it's the uh, Ringling Brothers and the Disney on Ice guys. It's a comic book story. It's just a bunch of pretty amazing stunt people punching each other 
in these giant costumes and running around. Uh, so it's not much, uh, not very engaging if you're not a big like comic book fan. But the technology is unbelievable because they do like everything I just talked about. They're doing even more projection mapping, interactive audio. That's a guy hitting a sampler for these punch sounds. Pretty intense motion control, moving lights, lasers. You, you, go, you name it, everything pyro, everything you can imagine is all in this thing. And it's an arena show. They're able to load this thing in in a day. So that, to me, just sort of marked a kind of amazing turning point. And maybe you know, other people have done this stuff too, but that's a good example of a turning point that I think we're really just limited by imagination now. If you can do that kind of show with a one-day load in, and pretty much, I mean, of course, there's customized stuff, and these are very smart and creative people on the show, but pretty much they're doing system integration to make it happen. So it's a D3 is the video system. You know, the audio was actually pretty straightforward, just audio playback. And then, it, again, these are things that, like, when I was writing my thesis in the 80s, I wrote a whole uh, piece on the Indiana Jones show at, at uh, Disney Hollywood Studios, which is still running. It's a good show. That was the first one you see these sort of manually run interactive sounds for people punching each other. And that was... EEPROM players and things where you had to like burn the chip and stick it in the socket and then if you couldn't change it and there's a guy and they'd like make it all and now it's just oh I just get some software you get whatever you want you know whatever your favorite sampler is or QAB or Ableton or whatever you like it's just a thing and you get a MIDI thing and plug it in you're ready to go it seems to me that a lot of these things are kind of known now like we know how to do wireless mics really well well that's obviously going to be a big problem with the spectrum you know crunch we know how to do uh, all kinds of lighting things and these products really haven't i mean lighting i can say this is a sound guy but lighting technologically it really not a whole lot has happened there the source 4 was this huge innovation is really just sort of a much better engineered version of the old thing and then they move that around so you have a moving light with a little brighter source and now we have leds which are cool but it's still kind of doing the same thing but that's kind of good because now we have these known tools that just work and like in New York, there's basically two consoles you're going to see, which means you can actually learn how to program it. And then an audio, same thing. Like, we've kind of made that digital transition. For the most part, we know how to do this stuff. We have some standards. The speakers that I have in my theater at school are 17 years old, and they're still working fine. I mean, we want to replace them. There's newer, better things. These things sound good. The new ones sound better. But the difference is kind of small, which, again, is good, because that means we have these sort of known tools in our toolbox on how to do things. And I think that's for the... I've just started noticing that in the last few years, and I think that's a pretty major change in our market. Because I noticed on your website, you mentioned you just bought a CL5, uh-huh. and you just had two consoles out in New York? What's the other one? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was talking about in like the lighting market. Oh, lighting market. Uh, okay, not so. Yeah, when I worked for production arts back in the day, you know, you had this. We had five different consoles, and even when we started our program at school, which is like 18 years ago or whatever, we bought like five different consoles, and... You know, we get the hog, and that went obsolete in a couple of years. We bought a strand console, and that and nobody used mm-hmm. that one after a while. And there was, I mean, they're still around, but um, but yeah, in New York on the the world that I see, it's pretty much you know ETC and Grand MA are the two consoles you're going to see. And in audio, it's a little different. Like Yamaha is still sort of the workhorse, but I mean, right. you know, of course, see Digico and all the other guys on the higher end stuff. But uh, but I, and this is what I tell my students. I mean, we we've kind of committed to Yamaha in our shop because we want to. From a training perspective, the students we have, it's just too much for them to learn five different console types. So we really wanted to learn one. And then the idea is if you really learn CL5 really well and then you want to go work on a Soundcraft board, then you just say, okay, how do I get to the compressor on this board? But the idea is the same. So we're focused on those fundamentals. We've got the CL5 and we replaced the PM5D, which is from 
2004. The Sail 5 is a great board, but the, really the differences are native uh, the Dante support and a touchscreen. There's really not a whole lot that board can do. I mean, there's more of everything, you know, and it's, it works better. It has some different algorithms in it, but it, effectively it's still a mixer, and the functionality of the mixer hasn't changed that much in 15 years, So, and even longer than that. And I think that but that's very different from when the time I got out of college because we made that in all the areas, in lighting and sound and video especially. Our video is unbelievable. We've made that transition from analog to digital, but I don't think we're going back, and I think it's the same thing with networks now that I think we're we're there, like networks are now in every department, and they're not going to go away. And I also don't think they're going to, once you get the concept of the network, it's not going to change that much. Just to be clear, why do I want a network? I mean, I use two speakers right. for my show. <laughs> and I can't imagine, I mean, occasionally I thought, oh, four might be neat. I was just up at an immersive thing in Montreal where they had 31-channel dome. Uh-huh. And honestly, I felt like we could have done that with three speakers. Right. <laughs> That's right. So why do I need a network? Yeah, it's a good question. I think if you don't need a network, you don't need one. In fact, I was talking about this guy, George, before. Like He had in his mission statement for his company, he's doing show control, and he had these sort of options, like here's the type of thing we can do. And option number five was don't use show control, right? Because you, you shouldn't be using it because, hey, I want to use show control unless you're, like, you want to learn about it. You should be using it because, hey, I want to synchronize these things really tightly or have this happen. And, oh, and here's a way to solve that problem. So on a small system, you may not need any network. You know, from what I've heard on the podcast, you're already running a computer, so you're going you're gonna to need a network one way or another just to make the computer work. Because, I mean, computers are uh, like nothing without a network connection anymore. Even right. I mean, I do run routers and stuff. I'm just not right. pushing audio. Well, if I try to use AirPlay, it's got a two-second oh, delay, yeah, so it's yeah. completely pointless. Yeah. A couple weeks ago, we did a workshop with a friend of mine named Richard Einhorn, who's a composer who had a really dramatic uh, hearing loss. Like, he literally woke up overnight, and a virus had caused his hearing to basically just be destroyed in one ear and Jeez. reduced in the other. Yeah, it's really, it's kind of, if you're a sound guy, it's kind of horrifying. That's Especially scary. the composer, same thing. So this happened about four years ago, and we worked with Dan Dugan, and we, we just did this thing at the Simons Foundation here in New York, which is a sort of science uh, incubator foundation. It's one of these fascinating places in New York. They're working now on a uh, Bluetooth hearing aid connection, which I think is a really great thing. And the, what made me think of all this is the key is the latency problem. And that's why something like you just mentioned, the consumer stuff, who cares about latency? As long as you can sync up with a picture and mm-hmm. the pictures are slow, like L- uh, you know, LCD monitors are pretty slow anyway, uh, visually, then who cares? You can just you can buffer it all you want, and that way if you have dropout or whatever, it's no problem. But Dante, which is really the most dominant live sound network at this point, about the longest you can even set that's like five milliseconds, and a typical network setup would be less than one millisecond. ABB is even a little bit is in that same ballpark, and even Covernet. So the professional networks don't have that latency issue because they can't, especially for in ear monitoring. You have to be within a few milliseconds, or people will freak out. Um, Are those wireless uh, options as well in, in Dante and AVB? Uh, not really. I mean, that you could. They, they don't recommend at this point, and that's always my advice for anything wireless: is don't do it unless you have no other choice. You know, mm-hmm. like for you, if you're a performer, you're running all over the stage, then yeah, you can't be draping a cable out. But something like a speaker that's not going to move, I would always run a cable to it, and I, that's true with anything because it's just once you have it, and especially RF. If you're following, uh, be a good guest to have with one of the guys watching this RF Spectrum auction thing. It's just a nightmare. So there's less and less and less RF Spectrum every day. And like this, 
hearing aid thing like these guys this is a big market pretty serious manufacturers and they're being squeezed by the spectrum it's just more and more stuff in there and you know that you can always solve that with the buffer so yeah if it's a consumer device you just buffer it out by two seconds and it drops out you know periodically who cares but that doesn't work for us so so yeah, I would say wireless, I would stay away from that. In general, you, you have no choice. John, I'm really interested. If I were a student of yours in your program at City Tech, what would I be doing? If I walked into class on first day of class, what would I be learning? Yeah, so we're an entertainment technology program. So most of the faculty came out of theater programs like me. Like I, like I said, I went to Ithaca, I went to Yale. But honestly, I'm not, you know, those are theater conservatories, both of them. For me, from the like technology perspective, if I was looking for a school now, of course I'm biased, but I would probably be going to, to my school because we're focusing on entertainment technology. So theater is one part of what we do, but the, uh, it's not the only thing we do. In fact, our largest production of the year is a haunted house. We start putting that thing in in Labor Day and it takes us all that time to get it put in. And then we run for the weekend before Halloween and then Halloween weekend and then that's it. Then the rest of the year, we do all different types of productions. So this year, we did a actually pretty interesting collaboration with Elevator Repair Service, which is a Ooh. pretty well-known experimental theater company here in New York. Yeah, I know. Um, so they, it was really interesting. So we're not our students come from a very unusual background that a lot of them are either you know first generation immigrants or second generation immigrants or from very poor neighborhoods in New York. And then there's also sort of you know middle class people from outside the city like me that that we have a few of those students as well. So we have all different types of backgrounds, but it's hard for our students cuz a lot of them have jobs and pretty intense family obligations. They can't do what I did in college where you just go commit yourself to a show for 3 weeks and you know forget about classes and stuff. Uh, our students just can't do that. So with Elevator Repair Service, they're kind of self-contained anyway. So what we did is we had sort of a rotating collection of students would come in and sort of support them in the rehearsal. So they were there to run our sound system for them and help out with the video and some things like that. It wasn't even designed around the show. It's a very interesting process. And they were in for a few weeks doing rehearsal, and then they did like two performances. So that was a really interesting project for us because it had a little bit of everything in it. But it's easier for us to kind of support it as more like a roadhouse kind of venue in that way for that long, long-term long stuff. And then we did some one-off things, like talent show kind of stuff, which is a really great opportunity for the students. Because like the Haunted House is such a big deal. We had like 4,000 people come through last year that we have to make sure that things going to work. So at a certain point, we're going to let the students try to fix it, but at a certain point, I'm going to like jump in there and say, okay, we've got to just get going here. And, but if we do like talent show or some student's band comes in or something, then we'll let them mix it and give them the opportunity. I mean, I sort of feel like education is an opportunity to make mistakes in a protected environment. Absolutely. And so we'll let them do that. And you know, if it feeds back a little bit, that's okay. And then our last show last year was actually a magic show who had a bunch of acts and put it together into one larger show. And then we built, actually built her an illusion. We built her a set did sound and video and lighting for her, and then had, you know, again, a relatively short run, because it's just so hard for us to get students on these run crews. And it's not because they're not interested, it's just everyone has a job. You know, they have to take their grandmother to the hospital or some really intense commitment. But then on the other hand, they come out, and this is some actually from an educational perspective, something I want to explore more is what's the sort of the minimum amount you need to be able to function in the industry? We would love to have everybody do some intense production, but we just can in our program. But it doesn't seem to help back our students because, like I said, I worked on this YouTube broadcast this year. It's in the Javits Center North Hall, and it's 
I think it's three or four thousand people and a very high end event for it's only one time ninety minute event. I think the labor this year is like over a million dollars. So I walk in on that show and this happens like every year on this thing. There was four of our alumni working there in different places. Some were working for Claire Brothers doing wireless microphones and intercom, some were doing programming the D three system, some were working on the video crew. A whole bunch of our students actually literally lined up overnight to take the local one apprentice test, which I took in nineteen eighty seven or something. And I got my local one card working at the at the Met Opera. But it's interesting because our students are not getting this sort of theater typical four weeks rehearsal, week of tech, two week run kind of idea. But they are functioning very well on these shows and working on really, really high events and going on tour. It's been a sort of fascinating thing. We, we kind of invented this program from the ground up. My colleague, Chip Scott, was really the guy who got the thing off the ground. Went from a crazy program to what we're doing now, and it's pretty exciting. So I don't think I actually answered your question. That, but that was great. Our very first class is Intro to Entertainment Technology because we it's open admission school. And those first semester classes, we get a lot of people that just have no idea what they want to do or they wanted to be a rapper and had no idea that there's all this like technical stuff they need to learn and they drop out. So our first semester, we, we have a pretty high sort of failure rate. But then the kids that come through after that, they're committed. And we also just have just some unbelievably inspiring students that we had one just fantastic student this girl's from like deep in brooklyn somewhere always there every day big smile on her face in a good mood straight a's in every class and then just one day like for a show she wasn't there and we're like what the hell happened to her and then turned out her sister was in rikers island had been arrested and it turned out that while she was going to school she was uh, like the mom of her family because her mom was out of the picture a drug addict or something and she was basically bringing up her own sister who's like, and this girl's 20-something, you know, waitressing at the same time, going to school, straight A's with us, and then bringing up her own sister. I just feel like privileged white boy every day I'm in there. Yeah. We've had students that were homeless. It's just unbelievable. You know, on the other hand, we don't coddle anybody. We demand a lot of the students. And, in fact, I had, I think, my best compliment I ever had uh, for that was I was working on Tribeca Film Fest. was a local one gig. And I designed the whole sound system and was there lining it. And this former student was working on the local one call, and he came up to me. Yeah, I didn't know him very well in school, but, I mean, he was, you know, he'd done well in, in school and stuff. And he said, I just want to come up and tell you that I thought you were an asshole the whole time that I was in school. Um, <laughs> but he, then he said, I want to thank you now because I realize why you were doing it. Because out here, they're hard on people. you got to work and you got to show up on time and all that kind of stuff. And he was very appreciative of it. And I think that was, like, the best compliment I ever got. Because, uh, yeah, we thought you were a jerk, but now we see why. You know, <laughs> We don't want to be a jerk to anybody, yeah. but we, we're very fair. And if you have a legitimate thing, if you have a family commitment, we'll work around it. And it's interesting because I used to teach at Yale and NYU as well. There, of course, I would get sort of challenged more academically on things I was saying in class. In our school, that's less likely because I think a lot of our students are more from a immigrant background where you you kind of keep your mouth shut and keep going and then we're like no no ask questions and take risks and stuff like that so that's one of the things we have to kind of prod them a little bit try to push them towards that and encourage that but again with the idea that the show must go on and i think in the end that what we're really teaching in entertainment technology theater whatever is teamwork meeting deadlines those kind of things so that's really the core of what we're doing since you mentioned the show must go on in your book, you have these uh, six tenets of system design. The first one, I don't have it in front of me. I believe the first one is ensure safety. Yes. And the second one is the show must go on. Right. I find the ordering of those two to be so crucial. And I think <laughs> often people yeah. get them backwards. Yeah. 
And I was just wondering if, you, if you'd talk a little bit about why that might be, or what you think the sort of relationship of those two principles is. Why do theater people sometimes get so desperate for the show to go on that they ignore safety? And what does that look like in the world? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the, the reason for it is just it's such a passionate group, and we do this. I mean, nobody's getting into this field to, because they can make a lot of I mean, you might make a lot of money, but you're not getting into it for that reason. You're getting into it because you love it, and you're, you have some story you want to tell, and you're so passionate about it. I think most of the safety issues just come out of ignorance, though. I remember when I was in college, we drove from Ithaca down to Orlando to go to the USITT convention, which was the only game in town back then. Uh, LDI didn't exist until the 90s, and I think even Infocom maybe back then was film strip projectors and stuff like that. But we drove from Ithaca, New York, all the way down there and went. That one was a turning point for me, but I think also in the industry, right around that time in the mid-80s was when people started kind of taking the safety more seriously. And I remember it was Randy Davidson, this guy Dr. Doom, who gave these presentations, just scared the hell out of everybody. It was actually kind of good because then we all sort of went back to school and go, oh, crap, look at this. This is like, you just start thinking about it. Oh, like dry pigment paint. We're mixing all this stuff with no respirator, and there's really horrible stuff in there. And we were doing crazy, you know, you're like young and stupid. I still remember this. We did a after end of the season project. It was a music concert for the school, and we were like walking these I-beams with big incandescent scoops out 30, 35 feet off of a gym floor, no fall protection, nothing. I mean, you fall off, you're just dead, or you're, you broke your back. I think that that now, in the world that I work in, and, and we're, you know, the mandate of our school is to support the industry in New York, so that's always sort of where our focus is. But I see it in the stagehands union, like, you know, there's still some people that need to learn. If you wear a harness, you still have to clip it to something like that. <laughs> you know, see some of that stuff. But at least they have the harness on, and they're, they're aware of the problem. During my career, I've seen a huge change in the culture now, at least in the sort of professional world, uh, maybe in more sort of amateur level stuff that's still going on. I think it's just ignorant. It's kind of morbid. You have to study some of this stuff to understand why we do things. Like if you learn about, you know, the historic theater fires, then you're never going to block an exit again. And if you study that station fire in Rhode Island, uh, at City Tech, I was teaching our health and safety class at that time, and I just started recording all these clips of everything off of CNN. And now there's a, a really great book called Killer Show. And I have a little sort of review on my website that details the whole thing. Written by a lawyer, so it's a little bit aggravating, where he's like, yeah, we got money out of JBL speakers for this pyro incident. Like, JBL had nothing to do with it. But they had big deep pockets, so they scraped 100000 bucks out of them. And he was kind of proud about that. On the other hand, these people didn't go to the show to risk their lives. They went to have a good time. That's just like a classic example. Just sort of, again, I think it's just culture of ignorance. They're not thinking about it. They don't understand what the implications are, I think, is the biggest part. And then if you're in a situation where they do understand what the implications are and they don't care, then you want to get out of there. I won't work in that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. When I first moved here, I was doing... It's funny to how much New York has changed. We had a warehouse in Tribeca for free, which is, you know, now would be... Uh, <laughs> $80,000 a month rent probably did all this crazy theater stuff and we had like the blue men came through and they were still caterers and we had <laughs> Paul Zloom who went on to be um, Beekman's World Joey Arias who ended up with Cirque du Soleil and stuff still around New York all these people come through in our sort of summer cabarets the artistic director is like a playwright guy and he would just have like the exit door locked I'm like you gotta unlock that he's like well, why do we need to unlock that like, well on the fire there'll be a pile of bodies there oh and that was it. The door wasn't locked anymore. So I think it's sort of incumbent on us to educate 
the artists that we deal with that just aren't aware of this stuff. I think if you tell them these the reasons for this stuff, not and I never say we do that because that's what the permit says or that's what the law is. We do it because this is why this maybe the regulation got out of hand, but it was based on this incident where this happened and somebody got killed. Is it worth it for that? Do you want to have that in your conscience? And then they'll unlock the door. So, and if they don't, I'm getting the hell out of there. So, and I know on your site, you write up incidents of outdoor shows where the weather was a big safety factor. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I've been a, a weather geek my basically my whole life, and when actually when I was working for Associates and Fair in the '80s, that was my first time storm chasing. I was living on Long Island, and a hurricane came through. So of course, I still don't know how I did it because we didn't have any radar back then. And radar came in '88, so I drove right down to the ocean, sat there while the hurricane came in. It was pretty amazing. It took me like 15 minutes to go down there and about three hours to drive home around all the down power lines. And I have pictures, of course, of all this on my website. And I was like, oh, maybe uh, I should probably take some precautions. <laughs> and then we had no power for a week, so we wired up. The guy I worked for had all this military surplus, so we spent like three days wiring up a turbine generator that he got from Los Alamos, you know, nuclear <laughs> facility or something. And then, of course, the, like the minute we were about to plug it in, the power came back on, so we knew. <laughs> um, recent years, I've been out storm chasing once the sort of wireless internet became affordable. I've been out chasing tornadoes and stuff in the plains, and I taken a couple meteorology classes and all this sort of turning point for me was this indiana state fair stage collapse four or five years ago and then the first thing i did as a weather geek is i looked at the radar archive from that area and i saw what's called an outflow boundary coming right out of the storm and it was really clear that high winds were on the way to the site you could see it probably 20 minutes in advance you should read the report i think i have a link for my site if the link still works so I wrote a lot of things kind of condemning them because it was really clear that this was gonna, a possibility. The strength of the structure is important and it needs to be built properly. But if you have a big tornado hits any stage, it's going to weather or a giant big enough hurricane, it can take down buildings. So any structure can be taken down. So that can't be the only answer. It's really about having situational awareness about what's going on and then also knowing what to do when it happens. So that stage was going to blow down no matter what. I mean, whether or not the ballast were in correctly or whatever, if it could have held you know, one more mile-per-hour wind is kind of irrelevant. Nobody should anywhere near that thing when it came in. And you look at the video, I mean, I can just tell you looking at the sky, like, exactly what's coming. And you can see the stuff on radar. You should read the report that they hired two consultants, one to look at the structural issues, and there was there was structural issues. The stage really wasn't built properly. And in the end, the ballast weights, if I remember right, the ballast weights dragged in that slacked a bunch of stuff and that's why it collapsed but the bigger problem to me was that the decision about whether to make the show go on or not the chain of command was not clear like they're asking the band uh, if they want to go on and of course the band wants to go on because they don't get paid if they don't go on so they have a big motivation and they're they're not meteorologists they have no idea what the hell is going on and then in the end there's like some state police guys looking at like the weather channel app on his phone if you know anything about radar radar can be five minutes old on a good day, and if you're looking at some crap app on their phone, who knows how old it is or how accurate it is or whether you're reading it properly or it updates stuck or something. And that's the, what they made the decision on. So the wind hit before the rain. So if you look at the radar, the right kind of radar, you can see the bugs and dirt getting kicked up in front of the wind gusts, in front of the alpha boundary. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And this is, as a storm chaser, that's where you want to be because you've got these incredible shelf clouds. I just, I just chased one out in South Dakota this year. 
so you know it's coming, and then you got to get people out of the way. So the the real issue, the tragedy of that, it's just horrifying. I mean, a couple of the people who were killed were IA members who were in the trust, well, on a file spot position, uh, and I get like it gives me chills just thinking about riding that thing down to your Jesus. death. Yeah. And they were under a, I have it all laid out on my website because they were under a severe thunderstorm warning, if I remember right, eight minutes before the winds hit. Eight minutes is certainly enough time to come down from the trust. So that's the, the tragedy to me. It's like, you don't have to cancel the show, just delay it for 20 minutes. The structure was a problem, but the bigger problem to me was the bad decision-making. And, and, and I ended up writing a blog entry called The Indiana State Fair Commission Has Blood on Its Hands because it really was their ineptitude that killed these people. There's been all kinds of other situations where these things blow over nobody gets hurt. Then right around that time, stage blew over at a cheap trick concert and then another one and then a some christian music festival went down i mean it was kind of an epidemic of this stuff some with no injuries which is great and others with really horrible injuries i think even just it was last year like a circus tent up in vermont blew down killed the guy and his daughter like in the tent with this thing and it's like so it's still going on and that is that at that point starts to become like criminal like before the indiana thing it wasn't really I hadn't really thought about it happening. I did 10 years of outdoor shows with the Metropolitan Opera and the New York Philharmonic, and we were out there as lightning and thunder all around us, but we didn't have the information we have now. And But I think the good thing that's come out of that whole, those horrible tragedies is that the, now like people take this stuff much more seriously. And in fact, the Event Safety Alliance, which was formed kind of in response to that disaster by uh, Jim Digby, they now do a severe weather th- summit every year and I haven't been able to find the money to go down there yet. I want to go one of these years. It's in Oklahoma, like in February or something. There's a thing for like venue ma- managers and people like that about weather. And of course, there's meteorological companies that will monitor this stuff, and not for a huge amount of money. But if you're doing a big outdoor festival with fifty thousand people to pay, you know, hire a, a, some qualified meteorologists to monitor the site for you, cost you a couple grand. It's certainly worth it. You know, you work with them. They'll give you different criteria for a load-in day. Then when the general public's there, because obviously if you have crew members can be trained for this stuff, so you can uh, you can have a little bit different level, accommodate a slightly different level of risk when there's the general public's not on the site than when they're on site. So again, I think it's the same thing about sort of safety culture. Like that's in our consciousness now, and I think should learn from these tragedies. I mean, there's always going to be these things where people just aren't paying attention, or, or from my experience being in the business now, twenty, thirty years or whatever, it's gotten a lot better than it was. So, and the industry's a lot larger, too. I think we need to take it more seriously. This concludes the first part of our interview with John Huntington. We'll have the second episode up shortly. Thank you for listening to The Q. As usual, I'll leave us with a quote. Just because something doesn't do what you planned it to do doesn't mean it's useless. Thomas Edison. The Q is produced by Active Media Group in association with The Q Show cast. Music for The Q was written and performed by Kyle Swafford. For more information and links to our blog, online tutorials, cast, and videos, please visit theqshow.com. You can contact us at info at theqshow.com. Now go out and make something, and you too can go to 11.